Uh, when, uh, when I was a kid, we used to sing this song in church. Maybe we can have sort of a bit of a choir time uh, here right now. Uh, we used to sing this song that went something like this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord with the left. And then we, you know, the left and then the right and then the leg and then the tongue and the head. And we all start wiggling around. I'm not sure where that came from. Uh, on, on this side of the story, it all, it all makes sense. Yeah, Father Abraham, he's the father of the nation of Israel, and uh, out of Israel came Jesus, and we are all descendants, so to speak, spiritually speaking, um, of Abraham, but Abraham in Genesis 15 is singing a very different song. He's singing, childless Abraham has zero sons. Zero sons has childless Abraham, and I have none of them. Oh, woe is me. But he still prays the Lord. Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 is struggling with doubt. He's, he's been given the promise and he's expecting fulfillment, but he's in that gap between promise and fulfillment. And in that gap, in that space between when God tells you something and you know you can rely on him, and in the time between him actually fulfilling that promise, in that gap there are times where we have all kinds of faith and we believe it and we know it, we can almost taste and see that the Lord is good, but there are other times where we're filled with doubt and we can't taste that the Lord is good. We simply have to trust that the Lord is good. And it's in this gap, in this space, where we find ourselves today. And what we learn from Genesis chapter 15, what we learn from our father Abraham, is that faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. One does not automatically cancel out the other. And that, and that striving to believe and yet struggling with questions does not mean that you don't believe in the first place. It's a, it's a false dichotomy to say that you, you can't have doubts even when you have faith. These two things can coexist and so often they do. And what we're going to see as we look at Abraham and really as we look at the Lord and how he deals with Abraham in this moment, we're going to see that God does not reject his people when they doubt. He does not reject them, but he reassures them. And he reassures them with pictures. He, he wants his promises and his faithfulness to be locked into Abram's memory. And so he doesn't just give him words to remember. He gives him visions. He gives him pictures to, to help him see. Pictures of stars. Pictures of dead animals rotting and bleeding on the ground. A picture of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. He gives these pictures to Abram, not to reject him when he doubts, but to reassure him 
The title for today's message is uh, Questions and Covenant. Questions and covenant, that, that God makes his covenant with Abraham, this sort of high water mark, this, 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 this confirmation of the promises that he has made. He gives this covenant at the moment where really Abraham is asking the most questions, where Abraham is truly doubting. The promises of God only really became true for Abram when Abram was actually to confess to God that he was struggling to believe. The, the structure to this passage is quite interesting. It kind of comes in two cycles. God speaks to Abram. Then Abram asks a question. And then God gives a sign. And then, it sort of, and then the main theme is sort of made clear. So he speaks to Abram in, in verse 1 saying, Behold, I uh, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. He, he speaks to him. But then Abram says, What shall you give me for I continue childless? Abram has a question. And then God says, Go outside and count the stars. And then again in verse 7, God says, I am. I am the Lord. And then Abram asks another question. How am I to know that I'm to possess this land? And then God gives a picture of a torch and a fire pot. You see, God had given Abram two promises in Genesis chapter 12. Let's go to the next slide, Genesis 12, verse 2. He, he promised Abram that he will, make you a, he will make him a great nation, and he promised him that to your offspring I will give this land. So Abram had been given these promises of having an offspring and having land. And here he is wandering around the land, filled with other nations, powerful nations, strong nations, and Abram's doubting, how, how am I going to possess this land? And how am I going to become a great nation when I don't have even a single child to start with? But we're going to see that God does not reject Abram when he doubts, but he reassures him with pictures. So I want to share with you four things to remember. When you start to doubt God's plan, as I do, as we all do, as all honest followers of Jesus Christ do, when you have doubts, when you have questions, here are four things that you can remember. When you doubt God's plan, remember that, first of all, remember that it will be greater than we can measure. Remember that it will be greater than we can measure. Look with me at verse 1. It says, after these things. What things? Well, the things like Abram and 318 men attacking by night four Mesopotamian kings that had already conquered five other kings and six other cities. And so after those things, after Abram had been blessed by Melchizedek and after Abram blew off the king of Sodom who wanted to make a deal and an alliance with him, after those things, God appeared to him. And look what he says. He says, fear not. God knows exactly what's on Abram's mind. God knows exactly what's on our mind. In fact, I mean, fear not is kind of like the default thing God always says when he appears to people. It is the most repeated command in all of the Bible. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Fear not. God knew that Abram was afraid. God knows you're afraid. God knows I'm afraid. God knows that we struggle with fear and when we make decisions and choices and act out of fear, those are often bad choices. But it's the fear of the Lord that gives true wisdom to help us make good choices. He says, fear not. He says, I will be your shield. 
I will be your shield. Why would Abram need a shield? Well, those four Mesopotamian kings, they went off running after Abram invaded them at night. But they could come back with reinforcements and they might have surprised them. They might have tricked him by attacking at night. He only had 318 soldiers, but if they come back with a lot more soldiers and attack in broad daylight, Abram knows he's going to be in trouble. Abram also knows that he, he most likely offended the king of Sodom by not taking him up on his offer. And so the king of Sodom, who was very powerful and influential as well, could have made Abram's life a whole lot more difficult. And so Abram, like many of us, would have just been kind of looking over his shoulder, not exactly knowing where the attack was going to come from. Abram knew that he had won a great victory. And he had drawn a real line in terms of, I'm not going in the way of Sodom. I'm not going to go along with the ways of this world. But then Abram knew that that made him vulnerable to attack. Maybe you feel vulnerable right now. Because you've drawn a line in the sand saying, I'm not going to go along with what's happening in the world. God comes to you today and says, fear not, I will be your shield. I will protect you. Not only that, he says, I will, I will protect you, but he also says, I will reward you. He says, your reward shall be very great. Remember that Abram left a very large amount of money on the negotiating table when he walked away from the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom wanted to cut a deal and say, hey, I'll take the people. You can take all the wealth, all the spoils of victory can all be yours. But Abram walked away from all of that wealth, but God reassures him. Listen, you made the right choice, Abram. What you left behind, it was, it, was, it was worth leaving behind because the reward that I'm going to give you is greater than what any earthly king could give you. And then look at, look at verse 2. Abram says, O Lord, God, what will you give me? You're promising me to be my shield. You're promising me to, to reward me. But what will you give me? Because the thing you said that you would give me, you still haven't given me. A decade has gone by. Oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In the air of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram is doing what we so often do. Abram is covering for God. He's come up with an alternative solution. He's not having any children. And so he's just thinking, well, I guess the next best thing for me to do is just to appoint an heir. It's, it's obviously not going to come the way that God said it was going to come. So I'm just going to, I'm going to come up with a band-aid solution. And we so often do that. We find ways to function in the midst of dysfunction. Rather than trusting God to do what really needs to be done. Or to follow through on what he promised he alone can do. 
So Abram asked this question. He says, well, what are you going to give me? I have a plan B all laid out. His name's Eliezer of Damascus. He's a really nice guy. He's going to be the heir. Because God, what you said is not happening. I'm doubting it. I'm questioning it. Notice that God is not afraid of our questions. The reason why God is not afraid of our questions is because God always has the answers. The person in your life who gets offended by question, how dare you ask that? Or the leader in the world who will not entertain questions, honest questions, legitimate questions, the leader who tries to censor anyone with any alternative point of view or perspective, the person in your life or the leader in the world who will not respond to questions, will not respond to questions because they don't have answers. And so they blow all of this smoke. How dare you ask that question or this or... They're doing all of that because they don't have the answers. God always has the answers. So God's like, ask away. (laughs) Challenge me in any... God is not offended by us asking him questions. Abram says, what are you going to give me? You've promised me a reward. But 10 years have gone by and I'm still childless. Faith in God is free to question him. Why are you doing this, Lord? Why are you not doing this, Lord? How how is this all going to work, Lord? I don't understand. Abram isn't accusing God. Abram isn't acting like he knows better than God. That's a whole different story. Abram here is humbly asking God for answers. What are you going to give me? How is this going to work? God's not afraid of questions. God gives an answer in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God reassures him. He doesn't reject Abram. He says, you know what? I just said I would be your shield and I'd be your reward. And all you can say, you don't even say thank you. You just turn around and ask a couple more questions. You know what, Abram? Forget you. You're ungrateful. You're impatient. And just, that's not what God says. He doesn't reject him. He reassures him. He reassures him with his word. He says, your very own son. And then he gives him a picture. He says, let's go outside. Let's let's look at the stars together. Abram, why don't you go ahead and try and count the stars? All 200 billion trillion of them. I know that sounds like a made-up number. I'm pretty sure that astronomers just made it up, you know. How many stars are there? There's 200 billion trillion. It's like saying a four gazillion. What what on earth does that mean? But anyway, there's a lot of stars. The naked human eye without a telescope or or, uh, uh, any sort of other uh, help, if they were, on any given night, there's 5,000 stars that you could count all at once in one, if Abram were actually to have the level of concentration and the ability to count every star that was possibly in the sky, it would have been about five to 10,000. The number is not the point. 
the, the impossibility, the, the fact that God is going to do something that is greater than Abram could measure. When we doubt God's plan, God wants to, to open up our eyes to see that far more abundantly than we could ask or imagine. That's the category in which God wants to work. Eliezer of Damascus, that, was, that, 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 that is too small of a vision. That, 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 that plan B is not what God has in mind. God says, no, no, open up your eyes. This isn't just about survival or functioning in the midst of dysfunction, Abram. This is about my faithfulness. So try to count the stars. Go to the, to do the impossible task of trying to count. That it says in verse 6 that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the first time in the book of Genesis that the word uh, believe is used. The first time in the Bible the word believe is used and the first time the word righteousness is used. And this would have been very, very important for the original audience. Because the original audience would have just received the Ten Commandments and all of the laws of the Old Testament. And there's a lot of talk about righteousness as it relates to the, following the Ten Commandments and following all the commands of the Old Testament. And the original audience could have easily confused the idea that the way to become righteous is by following all of the rules. But the book of Genesis tells us, the story of Abraham tells us, no, 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 the way to be right with God is not to follow all of the rules, it's to believe and to have faith in him. That is the way to be right with God. And it's from that belief that obedience flows. But until we understand that God is a faithful God, we will not be faithful to him in following his commands. So Genesis 15 helps us to understand where righteousness truly comes from. It doesn't come from a checklist of do's and don'ts. It comes from, does our heart trust in God's word? So the original audience needed to hear this, and, and loved ones, Christians need to hear this as well, because we so often can have a, a legalistic approach to our relationship with God, that God is pleased with me, or that I'm righteous before God when I'm doing the following things. And so New Testament authors, like the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, in verse 3, he says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis chapter 15. This is why, it, verse 16, he says, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, the promise is not only for those who follow the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Father Abraham does have many sons and daughters. And those of us who are faith are of faith are children of Abraham. You don't become a children of Abraham by following the law. You become a child of Abraham by placing your faith in God. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. But it, it, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. So, our righteousness, 
does not depend on our obedience to the law, but to Christ's obedience to the Father in dying on the cross and then being raised again. This is how we relate to God. It's through faith. Similarly, the book of Galatians in chapter 3, just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's, he's quoting Genesis 15 again. Know then that as those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In Galatia, there were these Jewish Christians who were telling the non-Jewish Christians that they needed to become Jewish in order to be truly Christian. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The true sons of Abraham, it's not about your physical descent or, or circumcision or obedience to the law. The true sons of Abraham are the ones who believe. Now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Now Paul is playing with the language a little bit here. He's being a little bit tongue-in-cheek. The Hebrew word for offspring or seed is zera, and it's, it's, it's one of those nouns where the plural and the singular are the same. So you have a, you have a word, you know, uh, the, you, 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 have a, you have a word like goose, and if you see one goose, you call it a goose, but if you see a bunch of that species of animal, you call it a you call them geese. Goose in the singular, geese in the plural. That's how most words work. But zera in Hebrew for offspring is not like goose, it's like moose. If you see one moose, it's a moose. If you see a number of, of that species together, it is moose. It's not meese, it's not mooses, it's moose. So it's vague. Offspring, Zara, is like that as well. So even though God showed Abram all of these stars and said, your offspring will be like this, Abram's saying, well, the offspring is actually, could be interpreted singular. You see, Abram, he, he was thinking about offspring in terms like this. Let's go to the next slide. He, he was just concerned about, I just want one son. <laughs> But God's vision was for many offspring, Israel, that they were going to be like numbered like the stars of the sky. But then the apostle Paul plays on this idea and says, well, but there actually, there is one offspring that this is really all about. Jesus, the offspring of Abraham. But then he expands it out even more by talking about there's many offspring in the church that in Revelation chapter 7, there are people who are larger than, than anyone could count from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 says that, that we are all the offspring. So you have a single offspring, Isaac, many offspring, Israel, one offspring, Jesus, many offspring, the church. It's far bigger than Abram ever could have imagined, ever could have measured himself. This is God's plan. He's always doing something bigger or greater. But we find ourselves in that gap. He's promised something and he, he's showing us that it's going to be bigger. When it's actually fulfilled, it's going to be bigger than we could ever measure. But in the middle, we have these struggles. We have this doubt. Abram still had no child. 
So when you doubt God's plan, remember that it will be greater than we can measure. Secondly, remember that it will be more difficult than we expected. It will be more difficult than we expected. Here comes the second uh, I am statement from God, followed by the second question from Abram. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Just stop right there. I am the Lord who brought you out. For the original audience, that would sound very familiar. Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord who brought you out, not of Ur of the Chaldeans, but I brought you out of Egypt. God, is a, God works in patterns. And he brought Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He brought Israel out of Egyptian slavery. Verse 8. Sorry, we'll keep reading verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Verse 8. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Here's his question. Now again, Abram has just believed God. He just saw the stars. I mean, you would think he would be going on some sort of high that there's no, there's no way he's going to be doubting now, right? Because God just showed him the stars. He just made this promise. So Abram, he's still in the gap between promise and fulfillment, but he's got to be like on the faith side, not on the doubt side, but no. <laughs> Even though God has personally appeared to him and given him this vision of the stars, Abram is still struggling And some of us, even though God is doing amazing things in and around us, we still struggle, don't we? So Abram says, oh Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now this is kind of weird. Uh, It's kind of weird because we're from another culture, reading a text written in in a very, very different culture. Notice that God asks for the animals, and Abram, who's sort of in a questioning mood, doesn't ask any questions. Why is that? Because culturally, Abram knows exactly what's going on. Abram's like, how am I going to know? How do I know that you're committed to me, God? Abram says, get some animals. Abram's like, okay, I know what's going to happen now. Notice that God never tells Abram to cut the animals in half. But Abram intuitively knows. I, I know what I'm supposed to do with these animals. I'm supposed to cut them in half. I'm supposed to spread them apart, one from the other. I'm supposed to create a bit of a pathway, a bloody pathway. Take one animal carcass here, cut it in half, and then drag the other so that there's a path of blood in between them and lay them out. Abram knew culturally what he was supposed to do. Picture a young dating couple or an older dating couple. And uh, they're sort of at that define the relationship kind of moment, the DTR. And, and the young woman or the older woman is talking to the young man or the older man and saying, you know what, like, I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know where this is heading. I'm not sure if you're committed to me in this, in this relationship. And then the man, who's clearly clueless, says, well, what do you want me to do? 
And then the woman says something like this, well, you should probably go get a ring. Culturally, the man knows exactly what she means, right? Not just any ring, but an engagement ring. Because the ring is a, culturally, to say, if you wanted it, you should have put a ring on it, right? The, the ring is a symbol of, I, I want to make a covenant with you. It's intuitive. She didn't need to say anything more. The guy understood. Do you know what I'm saying? When God said, go get some animals, Abram's like, I got it. We're, we're going to make a covenant with each other. Uh, P- Peter Gentry, who wrote a brilliant book on, uh, on covenants, here's what he says. The ceremony of covenant making involves an oath in which the covenant partners bring the curse of death upon themselves if they are not faithful to the covenant relationship and promises. Walking between the animals cut in half is a way of saying, may I become like these dead animals if I do not keep my promises and my oath. So Abram, although there would be much fear and trembling, although it's going to be more difficult than he expected because there's actually going to be a covenant being established right now, Abram would have actually been excited about this because this was a confirmation of the promises. The covenant is going to, is going to be made official. It's going to be made legal. God doesn't just want to have a casual relationship, an undefined relationship with his people. He wants to make a covenant with them. Biblical background to this, many centuries later in in the book of Jeremiah, God says, the men who transgressed my covenant and do not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and pass between its parts. That's, that's the meaning of the covenant ceremony. It goes on to say, their dead bodies shall become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Look at verse 11. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Why are the, why are the birds there? Well, the birds were there because the animals, I think, were there a long time. <laughs> There's sort of this awkward waiting period that Abram lays out the animals and he's waiting and then the, the birds start circling and then they get enough courage to come and descend and Abram's trying to shoo them away as he's, he's waiting for the next instruction. Abram knew that it was his responsibility to kill the animals and lay them out, but because he was the inferior in the relationship, he was waiting on the superior to say, now you should walk through. But Abram's waiting. The birds are coming. He's just, he's just, he's waiting Look at verse 12. The sun was going down. He waited all day. Now it's turning to dusk. And then it says, a a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. It's going to be more difficult than he expected. Darkness. Despair. Dread falls upon him. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there 
and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God tells Abram that his descendants will be in a land that's not theirs. There is a promise about the promised land, but they're going to live in a land that's not theirs. They're not just going to live there, they're going to be servants there. They're going to be slaves there in verse 13. Not only are they going to be slaves because there was the possibility of a good relationship between master and slave in that culture, in that context at that time. But this is not a positive situation. They are going to be afflicted. Again, for the original audience, they're they're reading this now hundreds of years later saying, he's talking about us. We were the ones living in the land that was not our own. We were the ones who were slaves. We were the ones who were afflicted. This is a prophecy about the slavery in Egypt. The original audience would have known that their suffering was actually a part of God's plan that he outlined centuries in advance. You see, some of us think that as soon as things get tough, that that must mean God's not in it. As soon as we come up against some resistance in following God, that that's the time to quit or to lay down and die. It's not the time. When, when we experience resistance, that, that, that does not mean that God is not in it. It so often means that God is in it. Paul said in 2 Timothy that through many, that through the, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Acts 14 says that, that through many tribulations we will inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, a wide door of ministry has been opened to me, but there are many adversaries. It will be more difficult than we expected. But that doesn't mean that God is not in it. We want so easily, we want things to be so easy. We want things to be painless. And our culture is becoming increasingly afraid of adversity and difficulty. And the church is is going along with that. But God makes it clear, no, your offspring will inherit this land, but it's going to be more Difficult. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. He certainly did that. The plagues in Egypt and the Red Sea. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That was also fulfilled in Exodus chapter 12 when the Egyptians gave them their wealth and they left with all of their livestock. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Here's the third thing that we need to remember when we doubt God's plan. Yes, it will be greater than we can imagine. And yes, it will be more difficult than we expected. And it will take longer than we estimated. Four generations. Four hundred years. They're going to be slaves. And they're going to be afflicted. It will take longer. We, we want microwave Christianity. If you're making a curry or a spaghetti sauce, it is possible. You can warm the ingredients in a microwave. But no one wants that. 
if, 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 if you want a delicious curry or a delicious sp- spaghetti sauce or a chili, it's got to be simmering on the stove for like three days, right? At least. You don't pour the marinade on the, on the steak just right before you put it on the grill. No, you, you need, it takes time. And God has a plan, and the plan involves a lot of waiting. Even in this coveted ceremony, I mean, he was up looking at the stars. The next morning, he gets the animals out. He's waiting. He's shooing away the birds. The sun starts to set. He falls asleep, waiting for God to say, okay, now it's time to go. But so often, following God involves a lot of waiting. Waiting is hard. But God has a reason why. Look back with me at verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Here's the reason. For or because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Who are the Amorites? Well, if you look down at verse 21, there's a, the Amorites are listed among the ten nations, the Canaanite nations, the people who were currently dwelling in the promised land. This uh, literally... In, in terms of literature, this is called a synecdoche, where one is being sort of isolated out to represent the whole. There's nothing particularly evil about the Amorites as opposed to the other nations in the land of Canaan. But notice how it says that the iniquity is not yet complete. God is very patient and slow in blessing his people and fulfilling his promises, God is equally patient and slow in judging those who refuse to follow him. God is going to make the people of Israel wait for 400 years because he's being patient with the people who inhabit the promised land. And he says the, the iniquity is not yet complete. There were some Amorites, like if you go back to chapter uh, 14, verse 13, Mamre and his brothers, they were the allies of Abram. They, they were on Abram's side. This isn't a, a blanket, God never speaks in blanket terms about a, a particular people group. The people of Gibeon, who sort of uh, bamboozled uh, Joshua, In Joshua chapter 9, they were Amorites. They didn't get wiped out. But what God often does when a culture or a nation or a person turns away from him, one of the signs of preliminary judgment before the final judgment is that God gives those people exactly what they want. And that, that is one of the worst things that can happen is when God gives sinful humanity what they want. And if they don't want him, they're going to want something that's going to lead to a lot of destruction. And if you want to read about these cultures and what they were doing, you can read this afternoon Leviticus chapter 18 or Deuteronomy chapter 18 as well. Describes in some pretty significant detail the, the kinds of evil that these nations were doing 400 years later child sacrifice, all kinds of sexual 
perversion. Romans chapter 1 says that God's visible attributes are clearly seen in what's been made and that human beings are without excuse. And then three times in Romans 1, it says that God gave them up. He gave them up in, in their thinking. He gave them up in their lusts. He gave them up in their passions. And that's what we see happening here. I remember a number of years ago uh, reading uh, in a devotional uh, by, by John Piper on this very text. And he says, the return of Israel to the promised land from Egypt would correspond with the completion of the iniquity of the Amorites. God timed the arrival of his judgment with the fullness of the sin to be judged, not before. God did not jump the gun. He was, in fact, long-suffering and endured the idolatry and sins of the nations for centuries, giving them rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. God causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. But there comes a time when the sins of a people are complete. That is the time for decisive judgment. The appointed instrument of God's judgment was the army of Israel. There was a, there was a time for decisive judgment. The book of Revelation tells us there will be a time of decisive judgment. But God is delaying that judgment. And he's delaying it so that those who refuse to follow him will be given up in a Romans 1 way. But there's also a, a heart where God has a heart for people like the Gibeonites and people like Mamre. People like Rahab and Jericho who wanted to be aligned with the sons of Abraham, with the people of faith. 2 Peter chapter 3, talking about the final judgment, says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But it will take longer. We need to understand that God is always working on multiple levels. Yes, it was going to take long for Abram to have a child, but God had a purpose and a plan for that. Yes, the people of Israel were going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, but God has a plan for that. Because overlapping with that plan was God's plan of judgment and repentance for the people who were living in the land of Canaan. God is always working on multiple levels. And this passage here in Genesis 15 actually addresses two issues, two reasons why we so often doubt God. Suffering and justice. When we have questions for God about suffering, why is my friend suffering? Why am I suffering? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And here in Genesis 15, we're told that, that, that Sometimes God has a plan for suffering that he laid out centuries in advance and that their suffering is not gratuitous, it's not pointless, that there is always a purpose and that God is working on multiple levels. This text also addresses the issue of justice because some of us wonder a lot of the suffering that's happening is because there's oppression that's going on and why won't God step in and stop evil people from doing evil things? And just like there is a purpose in suffering, we need to understand that there is patience when it comes to justice. That God delays justice. 
We want immediate justice in our world. Social media has just sped up the, the, the public justice process. We, we, we want things done immediately. Where God is patient, we need to understand that every single person in this room who's a follower of Jesus Christ has benefited from delayed justice. Because there was a gap between us being guilty of our sin and placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and God met us in that gap. And there, there would be no gap if there wasn't divine patience. How old were you when you became a follower of Jesus Christ? 66 years old. That's a, that's a wide gap. Delayed judgment. Delayed judgment. It will take longer than we estimated. Then look with me at verse 17. When the, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, again, this is taking a long time. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So Abram never passes through the pieces. But this, this flaming torch and this smoking fire pot, well, what on earth is this? Well, again, think about the original audience. Think about the original author. When God first appeared to Moses, it was a, it was a bush that was on fire that was burning. Think about the people of Israel when they were led out and whenever they journeyed by night or whenever they, or as they were camping at night, they were led by what? A pillar of fire. And when they arrived at Mount Sinai and they were told, you're going to meet God when he gave them the 10 commandments, what was happening to that mountain? It was smoking and it was flaming. The same words that are used here. The pot and the torch are symbols of the presence of God. Do you see what's happening here? Remember what the, remember what the ceremony meant? The ceremony meant that if I don't follow through on my promise, may I become like these animals. Abram doesn't walk through, loved ones, but God walked through. And so, yes, when we're doubting God's goodness and when we're struggling, it, he, he does open our eyes to show us that it's greater, but it, it will be more difficult and it will take longer. But we need to have this sense of perspective that it will cost God more than we could ever imagine. Because Abram was expecting to walk through the animals. But he never did. Abram was expecting to tell God that I, I will remain faithful to you, God. And if I don't remain faithful, may I become like these animals. But that's not what happened. Abram waited and waited and waited, but never walked through the, path, the bloody path of those dead animals. But when the time was right, and at the darkest time, when it became dark, God did Listen to these words from Ray Vanderlaan. He says, by participating in that traditional Near Eastern covenant-making ceremony, 
he made it unavoidably clear to the people of that time, place, and culture what he intended to do. I love you so much, Abraham, God was saying, and I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children. I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand. He was willing to express in terms his chosen people could understand that he would never fail to do what he promised. And he ultimately fulfilled his promise by giving his own life, his own blood, on the cross. In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or for yours, I will pay the price, said God. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at this moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. Yes, it will be more difficult than we expected. It will take longer than we estimated, but it will cost God more than we could imagine. It took longer. It was thousands of years before Jesus showed up on the scene. And it was more difficult for Jesus than we ever could imagine coming from heaven to earth, being crucified on a wooden cross, tortured to death. And just like with Abram, when the covenant was made, a deep darkness fell on Abram, a deep darkness fell on the whole land. When this final covenant was being made, when when the blood was being shed, when the Son of God was being torn apart and bloodied like these animals in Genesis chapter 15. And the result is greater than we can measure. Because the few hundred people here are just part of the innumerable number that have been purchased and redeemed. We are all covenant breakers. And Christ has paid the price for us. And just like God gave Abram pictures of these animals and the torch and the pot and the stars, our God gives us pictures So that we can remember the covenant that's been made with us. We have a picture of Christ's body that was torn. That was broken. Just like those animals in Genesis chapter 15. And and just like the bloody path that that torch and that smoking fire pot walked through. We have this symbol, this picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's given for us covenant Breakers, We deserve to become like those animals, but Christ died in our place. 